Um, so next week, we are starting into our summer series, and uh, it will be a 12-week series, 12-week study, and it's called What's in a Name? And that's going to be focusing on the, the Hebrew names of God from the Old Testament. There's 12 major specific Hebrew names for God, and in those names, there is so much wrapped up in that about His character and about His attributes and about His heart for us. And we have a tendency to look at those kinds of things on the surface and think, oh, well, what does that really matter for me? I mean, I'm not Jewish. I'm not living in the Old Testament time, so what possible impact could all those specific names really have for me? But as I think you will see, I certainly hope you will as we go through that study, uh, it has a lot to do with us. And what we can find in the names of God, the, the Hebrew names of God that He revealed Himself uh, by to all of His people throughout the entire Old Testament that really still carried over into the New, it has so much for us. There is so much richness there, so much that we can see and understand about His heart and about His character. And really, it has application for our day-to-day lives because of who He is, because of what's wrapped up and implied by His name. So I really hope that, that you will get a lot out of that study. I think that you will. Uh, I know that I will and, and have already. And so we'll be jumping into that next week and going, going all through the summer, what's in a name, a 12-week study on the Hebrew names of God. So I hope you're excited about that. I sure am. But before we get to that, we've got to wrap up our current study, a psalm for your calm. It's been a study of Psalm 23 that we've done. Uh, This is now the third and the final week of that. And as we've gone through this study of Psalm 23, um, I hope that it's brought you calm. I hope that it has been something that God has used after you leave or after you watch the video, for those of you that are still um, taking part in our services via video, I hope that it's something that God has really allowed to be a source of calm in your heart, in your mind, as we go through these days of uh, just unparalleled uncertainty and adversity and and anxiety and difficulty uh, with COVID-19 and now, of course, all the, the rioting and everything. God's Word stands as an anchor through it all, though. And Psalm 23, as I said from the very beginning, is one of the best sources in the Scripture for providing perspective and calm and encouragement, and I hope that's been the case for you. We've seen that we can be calm and we can have calm because our Lord, the the great shepherd, Yahweh, and specifically as manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus, who is the good shepherd, we can We can rely on Him, and we can find comfort and encouragement in Him, and we can get calm from Him because He provides everything we need. We saw that in the first week, that our great shepherd provides for us, and He guides us, He directs us, He leads us. We also can trust Him, and we can find calm uh, because He is always with us no matter what. Uh, we can rely on Him, and, and we can know that He is there as a strong source of comfort and provision and encouragement. Today, we're going to find, as we wrap up, that we can find calm through our shepherd uh, because of His grace and because of His blessing. He is a very gracious shepherd. And as we jump back into Psalm 23, uh, verses 5 and 6, as we wrap up today, 
we're going to see a shift in the illustration, a shift in the allegory. Uh, The first few verses, David is writing from the perspective of a sheep with the shepherd. That's what is is, uh, all through his statements, and that's the imagery he's providing. Sheep and pasture and a shepherd, the rod, the staff, and that's, that's his whole illustration up to this point. But in verses 5 and 6, he shifts, and he provides us with a different illustration, a different allegory, and that's of God, Yahweh, being a gracious host that's provided a, a bountiful banquet for us. So it shifts from sheep and shepherd to us as, think of a, of a weary, hungry, thirsty, tired traveler in a dry land coming and finding this, this elaborate tent set up full of all these amazing things. And we find this gracious host providing all this bounty to us that we don't deserve, that we, we didn't work for or earn, and yet is ours because of His grace and His mercy and His blessing. So Psalm 23, verse 5 says this, You, and he's still talking to the one who is the great shepherd, he's still talking to Yahweh, God Almighty, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So we're going to go back and we're going to just kind of dive deep into each part of this because there's so much here for us, so much treasure, so much richness. Um, There at the beginning of verse 5, he says, you prepare a table before me. Prepare, that means that's something that's intentional. When you prepare for something, it doesn't just happen. It's not just random. It doesn't just come together out of nowhere. It takes thought. It takes care. It takes some deliberateness, right? And a table is something that contains bounty and blessing and provision. And so when, when the psalmist here says, you, God, you prepare a table before me, that's speaking of intentional care and personal service. And really, it, it carries with it the fact that he didn't do anything to help. He didn't do anything to contribute to this. He didn't do any part of the preparation. God has, is preparing it for him. You prepare it before me. I come and it's just all ready for me. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't contribute to this. And yet here's this amazing, beautiful table of provision and blessing before me. It's personal service. It's lavish bounty. It's intentional care and it's all undeserved. And I can't help but But think of a beautiful example, still with David, with him personally, where he exhibited the same kind of grace and the same kind of provision for someone that was just as overwhelmed by that gracious act on David's part as David is as he comes to this table from the king the Almighty God, as he comes to this table in his mind and as he thinks about all that he has from God and he pictures this beautiful, bountiful table that God himself prepared for him, I think of of the account and the encounter between David and Mephibosheth. I love the story of Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. He was Jonathan's son. And when it was obvious that David was indeed going to take over the ruling of Israel, Jonathan accepted it. He knew it was going to happen. He believed that God had anointed David as the next king. He, he went to, to David, Jonathan did, and he said, David, I know you're going to be king after my father. I know it's not going to be me as my father wants to happen, and by rights that's how it should go, but I know God is going to give the kingdom to you. And when that happens, make a covenant with me right now that you will show kindness to me and my family throughout all their generations for my sake. Do that for me, David. Will you, will you enter into a covenant relationship with me that you will show kindness to my family after God brings you into the kingship? Will you do that? And David said, yes, I will. I promise that. So Saul dies. Jonathan dies. David is put into place as king. And as time went on, he said to his servants, is there anyone else left in Saul's family that I can show the kindness and grace of God to for the sake of Jonathan? And they investigated, and they thought about it, and they said, actually, yes, there's, there's a guy named Mephibosheth. He's, he's Jonathan's son. He's Saul's grandson. And he's, he's lame. He's crippled in both feet. And so he's living in this place called Lo Debar, and he's just he's there basically by himself. I mean, he does have he has uh, servants and he has people that are going to take care of him, but, but um, you know he's really just dependent on the mercy of others. David said, "Go get him. Go get Mephibosheth." And so they found the master of the house. Ziba is his name. Quite a name, right? And they said, hey, are you Ziba? Did you serve Saul? Did you serve Jonathan? He said, yes. And he said, do you serve his grandson Mephibosheth? And he said, yes. And he said, okay, bring Mephibosheth to me. So, of course, he obeys King David. And he brings Mephibosheth to David. And here's, here's Mephibosheth, a, a helpless cripple, and he knows how things work. He knows how business is done. In that day and age, in that culture, whenever a new king came to power and to prominence, you, you, most of you know the first thing that they would do. Off with their heads. Anyone else that was part of the family line of the previous king, they just eradicated everybody so that there would be no one left from that family to try to usurp the, king, the kingship that was now established, the, the new rule. They didn't want any threats to their, their throne. So they just did away with all of them. So here's Mephibosheth, crippled, had to have help even to be brought before the king. And in his mind, you know what's going on. He's thinking, okay, that's it. I've been found out. I've been discovered. David knows I'm still part of Saul's family line, and so he's just he's doing away with me. But instead, instead... This beautiful, shocking contrast happens to what everybody expected to take place. David says, are you Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth falls down before David, and he says, yes, King David, I am. I am Mephibosheth. And he says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you all the lands that were your grandfather's 
Saul's lands. I'm going to restore you all the holdings. I'm going to restore to you the house. It's all yours. And Ziba and his sons and all of, all of the servants are now going to be yours. But you, Mephibosheth, you will now always sit and eat at my table. Your your grandfather's servant will work the land for you. He'll bring in income for you. He'll bring in produce for you. He'll bring in provision. He'll manage everything and make sure you have everything under your name that you could possibly have. But you don't have to worry about a thing. You're going to live here with me in comfort. I'm going to take care of you, Mephibosheth, and you're going to sit at my table, which, by the way, was reserved only for the king's family. Only the king and his family would would sit and dine at the king's table. So in effect, David was saying to Mephibosheth, I'm going to make you my own family. I'm going to welcome welcome you in as part of my family, and the rest of your life, that's what you're going to do. And there's this this powerful statement from Mephibosheth as he's hearing this. In verse 8 of 2 Samuel 9, he says, Why would you show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Why would you, who are king, show such kindness and favor and grace and mercy to a dead dog like me? Because first, remember, he's crippled. He has no use. Nothing to provide or contribute for society. Second, he's the grandson of David's greatest enemy, the one who hunted him and tried to keep him from going to the throne. And by rights, David had every right and even expectation to just do away with him right then and there. But not only does he spare his life, he provides for his life in an abundant manner that that Mephibosheth would never have seen coming, nor anybody else around David. And so I see that picture and that image when David says here in verse 1, or excuse me, verse 5 of Psalm 23, that you prepare, you God, prepare prepare a table before me. I I see that David is is maybe seeing himself, if, if indeed this happened after he showed kindness to Mephibosheth, it's possible. And as far as the chronology of that, I mean, this, this psalm could have been penned after that had already happened, and maybe he thought back to, to Mephibosheth, and he sees himself in the place of, of Mephibosheth. That's possible, maybe. But what is absolutely certain is David knows, everything I have, I don't deserve. Everything I have that's good in my life, everything that's, that's a blessing, God, I know it's come from you. You've prepared the table. I haven't prepared this table. I haven't worked for this table that's before me. All these blessings that are in mine in my life, it, it's all come from you. And I don't deserve any of it. And church, I just want to remind you, that is what's true of us, every single one of us that are in Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus, we have everything that's undeserved before us. In the Lord Jesus, we have lavish bounty forever. We don't just have what we need here in life, although we do have our daily bread provided for us. We don't have to worry about what we're going to wear or what we'll eat, uh, as, as we're told in Matthew 6. We don't need to worry about those things. We know we're going to have that provided uh, by the provision of our, of our kind and merciful God and our chief shepherd. But beyond that, we have this lavish bounty that is ours for eternity, we have the riches of heaven. We have, 
We have the glories of eternity. We have an inheritance incorruptible that is ours, kept in heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are in Him. We have the, the ability to be co-heirs with Christ of all the riches, richness and lavishness of heaven. We have everything that's undeserved. We have a suffering Savior who is our personal servant. He didn't stop serving after He knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. No, He serves us day in, day out, moment in, moment out. Every breath of our lives, we have our Savior that serves us because we're told in in God's Word that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. That means He's standing at the, the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you and me right now. You know how sinful you are? Do you believe you're still sinful? Let me, let me hear you. Let me res- have a response here. Are you still sinners? Yes. Okay. Yes, we all are. Even though we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, we're still sinners. We still choose it every single day. We still choose to live for self and exalt self and pursue self. And we still go after everything that is opposite of the Savior who died for us. And yet, and yet, He still serves us by pleading our case before His Father. So we still have this incredible example of very intentional service on the, on the part of our Savior with us. And, and as David says, you prepare a table before me. Remember, there's, there's intentionality there. There's deliberateness. There's great care taken when you prepare a table. Any host... Preparing a feast for someone takes great care. Whether that's you in your own home and you know you're having company over, so what happens? Uh, guys, what happens? Your wife is very meticulous, right? She wants you to make sure you do your job to take care of everything, make sure everything's in order. And she's busy about preparing the home and preparing the table, and she knows what food the guest that's coming likes and what they don't, and if there's allergies. And she takes great methodical care, right? and preparing the table that will be gathered around in your home. Well, that that goes way up in scale when there's a a grand banquet prepared. And that's what this is referencing. This is like a royal feast. This is is a, a rich and royal host that's opening up all of his bounty. You know they're going to do it right. There's great meticulous care that's being done. And it's the same idea and the same concept that Jesus was talking about when He said before He went back to heaven after He accomplished all of His work on earth for us. Remember what He said to His disciples as He was getting ready to go? And it's actually before He went to the cross as they were discouraged and devastated to to hear that He was going to actually die. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I go to what? Prepare a place for you. And when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. If it were not so, I would have told you. But it is so, it is true, and I go to prepare a place for you. He's busy. 
He's busy serving, not just as our intercessor, but friends, the Lord Jesus himself is busy meticulously preparing a dwelling place for you and for me where we can dwell with him forever in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in all of his bounty that he will make available to us. Isn't that an incredible thought? You prepare a table before me. Not only do you prepare a table before me, but you prepare a table before me, David says, in the presence of my enemies. David certainly had a lot of enemies. All his life he was surrounded by enemies. Saul, and before Saul chasing him, I mean Goliath, and before Goliath, bears and lions and tigers, oh my, that tried to get his sheep. And after he got rid of Saul, he was still at war with the Philistines all through his reign. David knew what it was to have enemies. His own son Absalom manufactured a coup, caused a civil war. I mean, just all his life, he knew what it was to have enemies. But what was true of David is certainly true of all of us, that beyond any physical enemy, who's our greatest enemy? And I'm not even talking about Satan. I mean, that's a given. Yeah, Satan is our great enemy. But even, even aside from Satan, who is your greatest enemy? That's exactly right. You. Me. Yeah. And though we are our greatest enemy, and we certainly can do a lot of damage in our own life and on our own time, you know what? We really do a lot of Satan's work for him. Would you agree with that? We do a lot of, of his... Uh, his work for him. He doesn't really have to do that much. Despite our being, us being our own greatest enemy, despite our enemy Satan, despite other enemies we may have around us in our lives, none of that keeps our great host, our great God, from preparing a perfect, beautiful, endless supply table before us. And it's right in the presence of, of all those enemies including ourselves. And what David is referencing here is another common practice. Whenever a king would conquer a group of people, an army, whenever, whenever the, the battle was won, what would happen is they would gather up all the spoils and they would, they would put up a table and all the surviving enemies, the captors, would be tied up and forced to watch as the victorious soldiers feasted on all the spoils around them. So think of like this, you know, this beaten, tired, thirsty enemy soldier that's bound and he's, he's thirsty. And think of a, a soldier walking up and saying, hey, are you thirsty? And the soldier's like, yeah, I bet you are. <laughs> go, go, go. I mean, it's like that. It's like flaunting. It's like, you know, flaunting in, in the presence of those just defeated. Um, it, it's saying, yeah, you look on while I enjoy the spoils of battle. Uh, you thought you were going to get one over on us. No, nope, we beat you. We got you. Now watch us enjoy rest and enjoy provision. It's saying, you, you thought you were going to overtake us. Didn't happen. We overcame you, and now we're celebrating that, and you get to watch us celebrate. It's what Joseph said to his brothers, you, you meant all these things for evil. 
You had all these plans to do me in, to destroy me, to bring me to death, but God not only saved me out of your hands, He took all that you meant for evil and He used it for good, for the saving of many lives. That's what's wrapped up in this, in this phrase. And I think of Colossians 2.15, and, and I've, just, I've actually just got to read this to you. I don't want to risk any type of misquoting because it's just too... Uh, too powerful of a passage to do that with. Um, what Paul writes to the, Corinthians, or to the Colossians, uh, he says that what happened at the cross is that the certificate of debt that was ours, uh, that, that stood over our lives, uh, it was canceled at the cross. Tetelestai means paid in full, debt canceled, done, it's gone, it's done away with. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say that the cross canceled our sin debt. In verse 15, he says this, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. And that doesn't just mean the Jewish leaders. That's talking about the demonic powers, the demonic authorities. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the power of the evil one and put them, put all those demonic rulers and authorities, and really by extension, the human authorities that put Jesus on the cross, he put them, listen to this, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Wow. God disarmed the rulers and authorities by the power of Christ's cross, putting them to open shame, being victorious over them through his son, the Lord Jesus. And friends, that victory is your victory if you're in Christ Jesus. That's why you can say, I don't have to fear what man may do to me. I don't even have to fear what the enemy may do to me. You can say with Paul in Romans chapter 8, at the end of that passage where he says, will all of these things, will hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword and evil and enemies, will all of that have any power against me? Can any of that separate me from the love of God and my secure position in Him? No! He says we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we can say with David, in the presence of my enemies, I have this table prepared before me. And he also says, you anoint my head with oil. That was something that was done to show honor to an honored guest. Um, David, no doubt, was thinking of that as you, as you came into to a home in the Middle East, and certainly if you came into the home of a prominent person or a royal person, you would be expected, uh, if you were the honored guest, to have everything taken care of for you. You would have your, your feet washed. You would have oil put on your head to designate you as the honored guest of the home. That's really what Jesus was talking about in the New Testament in Luke chapter 7 when there was the woman forgiven much. As he was dining at Simon's house, he went and he dined at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And he was there and, and they were feasting and talking. And then all of a sudden, this woman who had been forgiven much, a sinner, which means she was actually a prostitute, a known prostitute, she knew where Jesus was. Obviously, there had been a previous interaction where Jesus had forgiven her of her sin, given her freedom from her, her lifestyle of sin, and she had to know where he was, and she, she found him, and she rushed in, and she was just weeping over him, and she anointed him with, with ointment and perfume. And Simon was just, he, was, he couldn't believe it. 
He said, how dare this sinner, this prostitute, come into my home and do this? That's what he was thinking. And he said, and if Jesus really was a true rabbi, he would dismiss her because he would know how vile of a thing she was, how terrible of a sinner. He can't be really holy. I guess I was wrong. He wouldn't be entertaining this woman if he were. And Jesus told this story about someone forgiven much, and he connected it with this woman. And he said to Simon in Luke seven forty six, he said, Simon, when I came into your home, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed me with costly ointment and perfume. She has shown me honor. And that's what he's talking about. And that's what David is referring to here. He's saying, though I am lowly before you, God, though I am nothing before you, I have nothing to bring to you. I I don't deserve any kindness from you. I am a dead dog, just like Mephibosheth said about himself. He said, yet you anoint me with oil. And they would have used uh, something that you probably use in cooking all the time. They would have used olive oil. That's what they would have used, olive oil. And it would have obviously not been in a container like this. But uh, olive oil is what they would have put on the head of of the honored guest. Um, And that's something that was common practice. And it was a sign of of being appreciated, a sign of being honored. And David said, that's what you do for me. That's that's what you do to me. Then he says at the end of verse 5, my cup overflows. And that's really literally a a cup of abundant drink. He says, my cup is a cup of abundant drink, of of never-ending drink. My cup is never going to be empty. I'll never see the bottom of the cup. It's like when you're at a restaurant, you know, and, and the, uh, we haven't done that in a while, right? But when you used to go to a restaurant and you had the server come beside you and, and what are they doing every couple minutes? If they're a, a good waiter or waitress and want a good tip, they're refilling your glass, right? Sometimes to the point of annoying you where you're like, no, I, I'm good. You're in this conversation and they come and say, more? And you're like, I'm fine. But they want to keep filling that cup up. They, they don't want it to be below a certain point. That's the idea here. You, you give me a cup of abundant drink, of never-ending drink. And it doesn't just not go below a certain level. You fill it up to the point where it just bubbles over and overflows. I mean, you just keep going. You know, you don't say, oh, that, I guess that's enough. Let's stop there. No, you just let it keep running out. Yes, I'm pouring water all over the stage. It just keeps overflowing and just goes everywhere. And that's what he's referring to here. And here's the thing about an overflowing cup. Not only does the, the water fill up that cup and, and you have more than the, enough for yourself, you have more than enough water you need, you're going to have plenty of water to quench your thirst, but as it overflows, it goes beyond yourself, right? I mean, if you're next to someone and it overflows there's a chance they're going to get wet too. It's going to affect the surroundings. It's going to affect where you're sitting. It's going to affect your, your table, right? It, it goes beyond the cup and it starts spilling out other places. And friends, with our, our cup overflowing from all the blessing of our God, we're to take that excessive provision, the excessive goodness and blessing that we've received, and we're to give that to other people. We are to be an overflowing cup. We get all this blessing and goodness from God. We get all this grace and favor and love from God. 
We don't just keep it in ourselves. We don't just keep it to ourselves. No, we too are to be an overflowing cup that, put, that puts forth everything we're receiving by God out to other people. We're to get them wet too. We're to be an overflowing cup and let all of that, that provision and grace and blessing and richness come out of us and spread to other people. Verse 6, David says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy. Aren't those just beautiful words? Goodness and mercy. Aren't, aren't you just hungry and thirsty for goodness and mercy in your life? Don't you just, you can't get enough of that, right? I mean, how many of us would say to God, okay, I've had enough goodness from you, enough mercy, I'm good, I, I don't need any more, God. No, we, we pray constantly, we beg, God, please have mercy on me. I know how, how sinful I am, how needful uh, I am of your grace and your, your mercy. I, I, I can't possibly get enough of your grace and your mercy and your goodness. Keep it coming, Lord, please. Goodness and mercy, we all need it. And thankfully, we have it. We have it through Christ. We, we can say with absolute certainty and claim the promise of Lamentations 3, which tells us because of the Lord's great mercy we are not consumed. His compassion never fails. His mercies are new every morning. That means all through life, every day, all day long. His mercy is new. It's renewed. It's replenished. It's that, that cup refilling our cup. It's just overflowing. It's full. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, David said. And that will be true of us. If you're in Christ, and, and as you just continue to follow your Savior, you're going to keep seeing His goodness and mercy just come to you in a thousand different ways. As you follow Him, you're going to know that goodness and mercy will follow your life. And as you're following Christ, and as you're having His goodness and mercy come over your life, and, and it's following you as you go forward in life, everyone else that follows behind you should be able to see on display the goodness and mercy of Christ and how you live your life. You should leave goodness and mercy to others behind you in the wake of your journey. Just like, like a boat traveling on the ocean or the water uh, on a river or a lake, and, and there's the, the wake that's left behind that boat. In your wake, Christian, as you go through life, you should leave goodness and mercy behind you for all who come behind you to receive. That should mark your life and my life as we receive goodness and mercy from God. Then he says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That, that means literally in the presence of Yahweh as part of his household. That's what he's saying. I will dwell with Yahweh in the presence of Yahweh as part of his household. Just like Mephibosheth was brought from where he was, seated at the king's table, dwelling there as one of the king's own family for the rest of his life. That's our story. That's true for us as well. And it's what Jesus said, the reason why he was leaving to go prepare a place. The last part of that statement that he made to the disciples in John 14, in, in John 14, 3, he said, the reason I'm going, guys, the reason I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and the reason I'm going to come and receive you again to myself is that where I am, you may be also. 
So in Christ, what David said he was sure of, you can be sure of, but only through Christ, only through him. And if, you, if that's your statement, if that's your story, if that's true of you, that you can say today without a doubt at all, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and I hope everyone here can say that. If you can say that, don't hold that wonderful truth to yourself. Don't hold that amazing bounty and blessing that that is to yourself. Be an overflowing cup, church, and overflow that knowledge and that truth and the the reason that you have for that hope. Overflow that to other people because now more than ever, our world, our areas, our communities, our families, our neighborhoods, they need that hope. They need to know that there is that type of assurance possible. That this life in all of its chaos and uncertainty and violence and decay is not all there is. They need to know it. And if you know it, you need to show it, and you need to proclaim it. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll close out together and, and be dismissed. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for being the shepherd that you are to us. I thank you for not just being our shepherd, but being our gracious host. I thank you for all of your riches. I thank you for all of your blessings and provisions. Father, may we not keep any of that to ourselves. May we... May we liberally share what you have so liberally given to us. Thank you for all that you are. May we draw comfort and calm from having you as the shepherd that you are, from having you as the great host that you are every day of our lives. Thank you for, through Jesus Christ, making it possible to dwell in your presence forever. May that fill us with hope, And may it overflow from us to others. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.